0: Hi, I'm Erin Welsh,
1: and I'm Erin Alman Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right.
0: We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. if
1: I can manage or self-regulate my emotions, then I don't get clouded by all the distractions. I can better solve problems and have imagination, which trauma can destroy or undermine. But the other reason, of course, is as a child gets older, if we're trying to react to the behaviors, it gets more and more difficult the older they get because the system gets less plastic. And so we want to be building that system as early as possible because the plasticity is so much stronger.
0: Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is Vulnerable Minds, the Harm of Trauma and Hope of Resilience with Dr. Mark Hauser. Dr. Mark is an educator, neuroscientist, and the founder of Risk Eraser, a program that helps at-risk kids lead healthier lives. He's a former professor of evolutionary biology and psychology at Harvard University and the author of over 300 papers, and many books. His latest book, which he is the author of, which we will be talking about today, is Vulnerable Minds, the Harm of Trauma, and the Hope of Resilience. Dr. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dr. Dan. I'm looking forward to the conversation. I'd like to start by saying, um, as someone in the field and someone who has followed the uh, development of trauma over the years and its literature, Your book is such a substantial and expanded contribution um, built on the shoulders of all of the wonderful work which you do um, talk about. And I have to say, because of your unique background in your multiple fields, the way you present the science, you do so in such a way that it's digestible, empathic, and relatable in trying to help us understand the complexity of trauma, which goes with the complexity of recovery and building resilience. Thank, thank
1: you for that. I, re, I really appreciate You know, when you launch these books, you kind of never know, like, am I making sense to people? Um, I think, you know, actually, as maybe as even an introduction to today's talk, one of the things that for me has actually changed in my own writing um, is in some way it's a transition from teaching undergraduates and graduate students and professors in some cases um, about the work that I've been doing over the decades um, to working directly with teachers in schools, clinicians, doctors, and the students or children themselves. And having Mm -hmm. to find ways to explain what often is very complicated science Mm -hmm. um, to them in a way that doesn't dumb it down, but makes it, as you put it, digestible and mm-hmm. meaningful. Um, and I think that's really has been, a, for me, an important, in some ways, transformation of my own writing. Uh,
0: done. I mean, accomplished. <laughs> and and um, I can relate to that. I feel often there's so much good science coming out of our major universities and research centers. And the challenge is how to get it to the practitioner and the person. So all of that work gets, um, gets put to work in a way. Um, and, and, and there are many topics that are very important. I, I can't think of many others that are as important of helping our youth heal from trauma and live uh, fulfilling lives. And I, I want to quote you here. Um, though adverse experiences are part of the human condition, no one should be committed to a life sentence of suffering from the pathology of their responses, right? These natural responses to anything from adverse events to horrific and unthinkable, which are also adverse. We'll talk about the continuum. It's, it's all too common.
1: It, it is sadly all too common and I think often I think as individuals cons- and consumers of the information when we're hit with you know numbers like you know 1 billion children globally are maltreated each year we tend to get numb with those mm-hmm. um, which is why you know I felt that in the book especially and in my own work is to keep these individuals alive in our thoughts um, because it's really you know it's it's how charitable giving works, right? You, Mm -hmm. you don't talk about the billion kids. You talk about Fred or Jane or Sarah, um, because that's the way that we can connect as human beings Mm -hmm. to what's going on. And so I'm often very mindful of this is that there's this kind of numbing sense of the statistics. And right now, of course, we're being hit with it, with what's happening in Ukraine and Gaza with the, Mm -hmm. you know, thousands and thousands of children who are being traumatized by war. Right. Um, And I think hearing those voices are really, really important.
0: And absolutely. And we will talk about, um, we will talk about the wars, uh, those that are in the news and those that don't get as much news and the impact on the millions of people. I, going back to the, the idea of connection, I think another very important part of your, digestibility in your writing is putting yourself as a human into the book, sharing some of your own experiences of adversity, um, your personal ones, those around you that you love, and also those, um, including yourself, who have come out with resilience as well. And um, for our listeners, if you could just share a little bit to set the stage of your own personal experience with this topic.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So, I mean, as I sort of start the book out, I talk about being the son of uh, my father, who was a child during um, the Holocaust and was basically running through Nazi-occupied France as a young kid for four years, um, often separated from his parents. Uh, My father is now almost 92 today and the the absolute exemplar of resilience uh, himself. But but it's an important story also because despite the fact that there was a lot of separation from his parents, um, they were always really there for him and were incredibly supportive of him obviously before, during, and after the war. Um, and he was someone who every member of the family was killed except for basically his parents and grandparents. Um, so, so that, that, that was my, probably my earliest exposure to, um, traumatic life events. Cause of course there were stories that heard all the time as kids growing up um and then i you know and then personally myself i was bullied quite badly um as a 13 year old in fact there's a story i just retold to a young boy in a school the other day about feeling like he was being unique in terms of being bullied and he goes you were bullied how did what (laughs) Um, so you know i think that's also a way in which you can connect and then some readers, you know, will be familiar with my own experience as an adult um, with what happened at Harvard with a research misconduct case. And that was, of course, a very traumatic experience for me. Mm-hmm. Um, one that in many ways I feel that this sort of second chapter of my career um, is in some ways not a response to what happened, but it's a way of dealing with issues um, and helping others. Um with an understanding that I have from the science that I've done. So that's that's a little more on the personal side. And then um, my two daughters, wonderful daughters, um, my youngest daughter, I mean, sorry, my oldest daughter um, suffered um, a divorce when she was, you know, four years old. Um, and that's a loss, but we've maintained an incredible relationship. And then our youngest daughter was adopted from Russia, um, from an orphanage that was Fairly, fairly minimalist in terms of the experiences she had. And she's now 22, almost 23. Um, And so there's that story. Um, And then just all the children that I work with in schools, both nationally and internationally um, now, um, who have had very significant adverse life experiences and finding ways to help them. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, you know, as I said, that's kind of a, a choir of sadness, but also of hope, because I've seen what is possible when you come out the other end when you have sort of the right supports um, and interventions that really can help with recovering from trauma
0: Mm -hmm. and and in this as we set the stage um for understanding trauma and then understanding how to help and for build excuse me building growth and resilience there's there's a few terms for us to, to to get a little to get some clarity on and there are adverse childhood experiences, which we'll talk about as ACEs, we'll talk about shortly. There's trauma, and then there's resilience. So can you um, serve these up for us in um, digestible uh, <laughs> words here?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, the book in some ways starts with the idea of ACEs or adverse childhood experiences because it's played a very, very significant role in many sort of sectors of life, uh, coming out of the medical profession, and we can come back to kind of the actual history about it. But the important piece here is that um, it's a way of capturing that there are adverse experiences which children will confront. Um, and as the originators of the concept, uh, Dr. Vincent Felitti and Robert Anda, who are the originators of that concept. Um, Childhood, because so, we've got three terms here, adversity, childhood, and experience. And they kind of defined them. Uh, childhood was basically birth to the age of 18. Adversity was not really defined, but they picked things that were in some sense out of the norm or the typical experience of a child within the family environment. So things like emotional neglect, physical neglect, Uh, uh, sexual abuse, physical abuse, um, a parent with mental health issues, an incarcerated parent. Um, So these were the adversities and then childhood birth to 18. And then the experience is just that kind of experience, whether short or long lived. And from the ACEs work, people would basically fill out a survey that had 10 questions, specifically 10 adverse childhood experiences. And if they had those, they would indicate it by a score of one. So the score is potentially zero to 10. Either you're someone who's had none of these, or you've maybe have had 10 of these. And the interesting thing there was that that was about the experience. But that experience doesn't determine what the response to the experience is. And that's where the distinction between a traumatic response and a resilient response really becomes important. And it's important, something I'm sure we'll get into, because it's often been misinterpreted that the A score defines the actual psychological response. Mm-hmm. The A score is simply a definition of the experience, not the response. So, just to give an example of something I cited before, my father went through four years of war. That was a long lived experience, chronic. Okay. He certainly was affected by that, but he is the pillar of of resilience. And yet we've got children now in Gaza, Israelis, Palestinians, children in Russia and Ukraine who are living through these wars right now. And some of them are absolutely psychologically scarred by that. Mm -hmm. Trauma is another word for scarring. The body and brain are scarred by the experience. So we have both traumatic responses and resilient responses. And in each of those cases, we want to understand why is it that some individuals tilt more towards the vulnerable traumatic side and others towards the more resilient side. The story there is both of nature and of nurture. And we Mm -hmm. have to understand how those work together to create individual differences.
0: And I'm, Going back to graduate school, which was prior to the ACE study for me, the ACE study came out just as I entered the field as a professional, Um, but going back to some studies from Vietnam veterans when they were looking at, okay, here here are these, these soldiers, they're in the same foxhole, the same horrific thing they experience, the same losses they incur with their colleagues and friends, and some of them... Have lifelong challenges with psychological problems, physical issues, substance abuse, and others are seemingly moving through life um, and moving forward and back then in those studies this I think gets back to the nature and nurture if I recall it was a lot of the issues a lot of the variables were they concluded had to do with that soldier's life prior to becoming. Uh, a soldier and what their vulnerabilities were, which now we could probably say through the ACEs that they had experienced prior to entering the force.
1: Yeah. So nice, nice connection there. So, and and I think the, the traumatic response of the veterans, of course, the origins and incarnation of the idea of post-traumatic stress disorder as a clinical distinction that appears in the diagnostic statistical manual, the kind of the Bible at least for US, Canada, Mm -hmm. um, really came out of the veteran work, realizing that they weren't quote unquote crazy, the term in those days, but that it was a clinical diagnosis, just like depression or anxiety, but trauma as defined in those days, and and to some extent, defined clinically to this day, was really a response to violence, either committing violence or experiencing violence indirectly. Um, So they were really responses psychologically um, about a traumatic experience of violence. And of course, in those early days, there was not much known about the impact potentially of early childhood experiences in shaping people's nervous systems. And we now know a lot more about that. And this is where I think some of the work becomes really interesting and important. You could say I had adverse childhood experiences. I was bullied. Okay. I could say that my youngest daughter, she wasn't bullied. She wasn't exposed to violence, but she was neglected, deprived for the first couple of years of life. We both had childhood experiences that were adverse, They happened at different times in our life. They were different kinds of adverse experiences. And that's important to understand because they have different psychological effects later in life. So simply saying that an individual has had an adverse childhood experiences doesn't tell a sufficient story about what later life effects there might be. We can see, for example, in and this has been done in some really, really elegant and also heart-wrenching work. If you look at prisons with inmates who are, let's say, are in for life, you often see that their ACE scores are through the roof. Mm -hmm. They've had an accumulation of ACEs and they've had the significant scarring from their immune system, their nervous system, and their autonomic system. that just shows the devastation of that accumulation over a life. But that's with a heavy dosage of those experiences. And I think where the real elegance of current day sciences is, is it's helping us understand that we want to look much more specifically at the kind of experience, mm-hmm. when it occurred in childhood, and for how long these different dimensions ultimately shape the potential response later in life.
0: This is one of the many advances of the literature that you bring in with your work, uh, the adverse tease, and breaking down the type, the timing, the tenure, the turbulence, and the toxicity. All of these things make a tremendous difference, as well as that support when we talk about recovery and, you know, like that support. So for your father, for example, who, you know, for those of you, please go read the book because um, Dr. Mark talks about in much more detail what his father went through and to think about what he went through and the resilience and the, and how he came out, all of these T's came into play as well as the background support of parents and grandparents
1: that that's right and i think you know for the for the listeners today who may have seen the wonderful movie life is beautiful mm-hmm. where the father you know creates this in some ways imaginary world for his son um my father's parents didn't create an imaginary world but they tried as best as possible to protect him from the issues that were going on but you know as an example because of their thinking around this They felt that as a family, they were much more likely to be caught by the Nazis than if they split up. So every two to three months, they would find a new place for him to be, and they would place them in some home that he didn't know know anybody. And then two to three months later, they'd pick him up and move him again. And, of course, that strategy seemed to work and that they all three of them survived. But what it meant for my father was putting on kind of a new hat. Um, Every few months. And in one case, he put them, uh, they put them with Jesuits, where the hat he had to put on was a different religion, um, because the Jesuits were protecting Jews who were hiding. And so imagine, you know, being kind of shaped by one set of beliefs and going, no, 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 for the next several months, you're taking on this whole new set. And you know, the discipline, the Jesuits, the academics. My father was a brilliant, is a brilliant man. He was a Harvard graduate student in physics and was a physicist at Bell Labs. So he was in love with the Jesuit way of thinking. Um, But every few months that was a new deal. Mm -hmm. And that flexibility um, is, was part of his nature. Mm -hmm. Um, But I see kids every day who don't have that flexibility, Um, And sometimes those are associated with disabilities. So for example, it is fairly well known that ACEs are much more prevalent in children with disabilities, such as autism. Autism as a disability is one that is typically associated with inflexibility. You now take inflexibility and you marry it with these adverse experiences. And now you have a child who's got great difficulty recovering because of the inherent inflexibility. Mm -hmm. And so this is a story which is just crying out for engagement by so many different practitioners who can come into play here in helping these children recover. It's not doctors, it's not just nurses, Mm -hmm. it's not just teachers or parents or social workers. It's literally a community of scholars in different areas that have to come together to help Mm -hmm. these kids recover.
0: Yes, and um, again, we will talk about all the your recommendations um, for both current and emerging therapies. And I think what um, really impacted me from a previous work that you cite a few times from Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah, what happened to you about how so many of the recovery, the, the healing and recovery and treatment modalities are not, the, the ones that work, are not necessarily the traditional ones that I was trained in. You know, it's not necessarily talking therapy. It's not necessarily group therapy. It's not, of course, CBT, DBT. All of These all are very helpful. But how so many of them go back to community. They go back to um, the idea of tribes and villages, of healing, of song, yes. of dance, of body work, of, yes. uh, you know, just these basic human Um, basic human needs and responses and how that is needed for recovery.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, we obviously will get into a little bit more. I think one of the things to keep live here in this conversation as a small piece is that in many cases of childhood adversity, depending on, again, type and timing, one of the things that these experiences disrupt when there's a traumatic response is they often disrupt parts of the language system. So talk therapy Mm -hmm, (laughs) isn't going to be (laughs) your best move because they're not talking or they're not able to recover the words or they're not able to express themselves or just even the language itself might be toxic to them in some ways. And so for many of the kids that we work with, it's that subtle nonverbal gesture. It's that touch of kindness. It's that being there for them. It's that just Understanding, and you know again what's nice about you know uh, Dr. Perry's and Oprah's book title is that what happened to you isn't you know it's of it's course it's an idea's been around for a while, but I love the idea because so many of the teachers or clinicians or paraprofessionals who work with these kids, these children are difficult to work with. It's a very difficult job. I mean, if anybody deserves the six figure salaries, it's them.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: mm-hmm. yet when some kid is punching you, I mean, just the other day I was with a child who was completely dysregulated and needed to be restrained because he was going to hurt himself and others. And the next day you have to be back there and going, Hey, I'm still here. I still like you. I still want to interact with you. So that frame of mm-hmm. what happened at that point, what did you need from me that could have helped you not go to that escalated level? And mm-hmm. for some of these kids with these traumatic histories, they go from zero to 60. Right. And there's no predictive power there. They mm-hmm. just go. Right. So helping them see that you're there, that you're consistently there, that you're there to nurture them and be supportive When they haven't had that.
0: Mm -hmm. So as we work our way towards the help, another, we have to break this down a little farther because another one of your contributions is the difference between what you term traces and races, right? So expanding on the ideal of ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. So tell us a little bit about the difference between a trace and a race and how we get traces to races.
1: Right. Good. So... The idea is I wanted to be really clear in the book, um, in part because I think there's been a lot of confusion about ACEs being a measure of traumatic response. And just as a a pushpin here, um, it's become important because ACEs have played a role in policy and insurance. And one of the things that I'm trying to do is let's be really clear about the difference between experience and response to the experience. So traces are the traumatic response to the ACEs, and races are the resilient response to the ACEs. And we want to understand both. And I think a big part of the conversation in the book is pointing to some very elegant studies showing individual differences. Um, there's this lovely set of studies where they look at the uh, sort of relationship between the severity of adverse experiences a child has experienced in the kind of early teen years, and then the likelihood of engaging in basically juvenile delinquents, violence, other kinds of crime, robbery, and so forth. And what they find is this very nice correlation. The greater the severity of the the response, traumatic response, the higher the level of juvenile delinquency, okay? So imagine just two axes, severity of the uh, adversity is the horizontal or x-axis and the y-axis is the level of juvenile delinquency. And that relationship is very, very positive, okay? The interesting thing is, and there's many curves like this, is that there's a huge amount of individual differences. And that to me is where the hope lies. Mm You can look along that X axis, the horizontal axis, and see that there is a band of kids who have from no, almost no traumatic experience or adversity to the highest level, and yet they have no juvenile delinquency. So, despite completely different experiences, totally different responses to those experiences. That tells us that some of them. Have something going on biologically and environmentally that, in one case, has made them very vulnerable to taking these risky behaviors. In other cases, no. And we are now beginning to understand much more about that. For example, it looks like those who don't lean towards the traumatic end, but rather towards the resilient end, have, in some ways, more. Refine stronger executive systems. These are the systems in the typically anchored kind of in the frontal areas of our brain that are involved in attention, short term working memory, planning, self regulation. When those systems are well coordinated, biologically, and perhaps in some ways, maybe early environmentally. It leads to more protection. It's like they've got a prophylactic mm-hmm. against the adversity that protects them. And that's really, really fundamental for our understanding because by seeing that, that early stability or strength of the executive system can protect against future adversity, it really shines a light on early childhood education focusing on building that system up as best as we can because it may be our best resistance Mm. against future adversity, which, as you nicely said at the beginning of the show, we aren't going to get rid of adversity. Mm -hmm. Kids are going to confront these, and we need, therefore, to provide the best protective tools we can so that they're
0: ready. So what we're talking about is if we acknowledge adverse. Childhood experiences happen to virtually all of us with high degrees of variability in the timing, the turbulence, all of the t's, the duration, the severity. This is this goes back to our basic resiliency training that many schools have tried to infuse, even outside of the trauma work, but but often in co um, in conjunction with trauma-informed education work is let's build resilience for to prepare kids for life, not just wait for something really bad to happen that we know about and then see some very difficult behaviors and emotional difficulties and then do something. Cor- correct. And I think there's a couple
1: reasons for that. One is um, the more we can be proactive in our work with children, giving them skills, like Look, we think about this with academics, right? We don't wait until they're 13 to give them math and reading. We do that really as early as we possibly can to give them the skills to grow. We need to do that. And as you said, there are many schools in different countries that are trying to build those, are often called soft skills. But I think that's a Mm -hmm.
0: misinterpretation
1: because soft skills are often referred to as things like empathy and kindness and so forth. But the executive systems and systems are critical thinking skills because if i've got strong attention if i can manage or self-regulate my emotions then i don't get clouded by all the distractions if i can keep things in mind in my working memory i can better solve problems and have imagination which trauma can destroy or undermine but the other reason of course is as a child gets older If we're trying to react to the behaviors, it gets more and more difficult the older they get because the system gets less plastic. And so we want to be building that system as early as possible because the plasticity is so much stronger.
0: Mm -hmm. Something that I learned, um, one of the many things I learned from your book is when if I go back to referencing those um, veterans in Vietnam who were the ones that were on the um, resilient side and seemingly moving about their lives. The research actually shows those who are resilient, who show resilience, still have, depending on their experience, internalized physiological changes that still can impact their health.
1: Absolutely. And I think one of the, the, to me, one of the absolutely illuminating and so important result is that what happens on the surface with people is not a diagnostic of what's happening internally. And the really important message I think here is that one of the things that especially chronic traumatic responses due to the individual is it undermines the immune system. And, you know, one of the cases that Dr. Felitti, again, the the originator of the ACEs study pointed to was a woman who contacted him after the study was published, who was a circuit court judge by all, all indicators, a very successful person, right? She had obviously done well in college, gone through law school and succeeded at a very, very high level. She had been um, effectively pimped out as a child um, and for you know for a very long period of time as a child um, by a father and was now suffering from four different types of cancer. Her immune system was just trashed, and so here's a person who just literally is being eaten alive because the stress system is just basically corroding that immune system. And so the key piece is that what we see on the surface is only one layer. And that's why the expression often is what's happening beneath the skin has become so important in this area is to dig down and see what's going on. And so whether it's a veteran who's been exposed to war or these children who have been exposed to war, Um, that we need to uncover how they're responding. And here's a little tidbit, this is fairly new work, but I think it's very relevant today, given the children in Gaza and Ukraine and other parts of the world. It turns out that individuals who are avoidant of their war experiences as children, are much more likely to suffer from dissociation and PTSD than children who acknowledge the Mm. experience of war. And that's an incredibly important finding because what it tells us is that we must work with these kids now Mm -hmm. to make them acknowledge that they are going through hell. Mm -hmm. And that's okay Mm
0: -hmm.
1: because the ones who go, no, no, it's okay, it's cool, I'm I'm, I'm cool. No, you're not, right? right? you have been experiencing something that no child should ever experience. Mm-hmm. And so acknowledging it, acknowledging how horrible it is to lose a parent, a sibling, a friend, a house, these are horrific experiences for children. And so we can help them better recover by bringing that on board. Not just one tiny little piece, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it forms a part of an intervention.
0: Yes. And and so important as we start to break all of these things down. Um, so a few comments, thoughts. One is for us all to remember this dissociative, avoidant response is a natural coping response to adverse events and trauma. Right? And there's there's the, there's the different responses that we humans have. So that's one. And to understand it, and to as you also point out, many times the ace stu- the ace's original study and the many replications thereafter are so significant for us and yet we have to look at it as big data which are these are patterns that informs it informs our understanding of trauma it under- helps us understand recovery it helps us with policy however each traumatic child an individual is one single traumatic child and an individual. And we have to play off of here are the patterns. Here are looking at the different types of adverse T's. And now let's look at this child to see where they are in their development based on all of those T's and which way they're leaning. Towards the, the traces or kind of how do we get them to the races?
1: The reason why this is you know so important, bringing together policy, medicine, education, these different pieces is just like this, um, woman I mentioned who Dr. Felitti had spoken to, who's the circuit court judge with cancer. I've worked with many children, um, who have been sexually abused. That's their only ACE only (laughs) in quotes. Right. Right. And so on an ACE score, they're in some ways kind of invisible because it's just one. And in certain states, in this country, in certain countries, um, the A score is used uh, for insurance policies. And if you have an A score below four, three, zero, three, you get one kind of level of insurance. And if you are four or more, you get another one. So that little girl, these little girls uh, who've been sexually abused and some little boys um, would be on that lower insurance level because their ACE score risk is just lower. And yet these are children who are devastated by the sexual abuse. And more to the point, as many researchers have now shown, often when you have one ACE, there are potentially multiple ACEs. But we now know that which combinations also make a difference. Sexual abuse tied to almost any other ACE has a disproportionate impact traumatically. And so that is why we can't just give a score Because Mm -hmm. that score is incredibly misleading in terms of work. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't all be on alert for adverse childhood experiences. But we need to understand when they occur, how long they occurred. Mm -hmm. And one of the ones that you mentioned for the advertia is called turbulence, which is really about the predictability or controllability. And again, here, tying back to the war one of the most devastating things for children in war is the absolute unpredictability and uncontrollability of the situation. Mm -hmm. And for children living in worlds of adversity, they're uncontrollable and unpredictable. Mm -hmm. What schools often can do is provide that predictability and reliability. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna be here tomorrow, no matter if you punch at me, spit at me, kick me or ignore me, I'm here tomorrow for you. I'm Mm -hmm. here and I'm gonna help you. Mm -hmm. And that's what ultimately will help begin to build back Mm -hmm. some of the feeling that I have a voice here Mm
0: -hmm. and a feeling of safety
1: and a feeling of safety
0: safety and stability. Um, Let's go to war and then we're going to go to um, schools and the other ways to help with recovery. So, you know, you eloquently describe the impact of several communities during World War II uh, mothers who uh, were pre- were pregnant with their childs and the long-term effects, uh, both physiologically and behaviorally, of those kids based on their parents' different their mothers' different experiences in the war. You talk about the Russian and Ukrainian war. You actually talk about, it's almost, um, you know, sadly foretelling, you talk about um, the Palestinians, Gaza, and Israeli con- past conflicts before our latest atrocity almost setting the stage for what is what have you learned from the impact of war on mothers and the impact it has on their born and unborn children and what do what do we need to do what do we need to be aware of
1: yeah, yeah. so <laughs> you know it was funny. I think, you know, you write, you write a book and you don't always remember, even after it's done, right, right, <laughs> exactly right. what you wrote. Yep. <laughs> and what was so sh- in some ways shocking to me was I, of course, had remembered that I had written about um, this YouTuber from this little girl from you know Palestine um, and that the opening of the war chapter begins with what ha- was happening in Gaza. But that, I wrote that in 2021. Mm-hmm. And so to see what's happening now and go, oh, my God. And some of the most elegant science comes from Ruth Feldman, a neuroscientist in Israel who has studied children on the Israeli side in the Gaza conflict and the impact on mothers and children. So it's extraordinary science It's also excruciatingly sad because of the impact it has. And in some ways, the best way to think about it is the chain reaction of effects it has on pregnant mothers, their developing fetus, and the children as they get older. So one of the things that war does to a mother, a pregnant mother, but also, of course, mothers with children um, postnatally, is it undermines their empathy. Mm. So mothers exposed to war have an empathy system, meaning I feel what it's like to be you. I can put myself in your shoes. Different from sympathy, right? Sympathy is I see someone in pain and I see that's a bad thing or I recognize that I may I help, but I don't say feel what it's like to be you. That empathy circuit ultimately is perspective taking. And there's kind of a unconscious emotional aspect to empathy and a more cognitive kind of conscious part of it. It's that unconscious kind of uh, affective piece, which is undermining mothers who have been exposed to war. Now, fast forward, that baby is born. If I don't have empathy, then I'm not recognizing the symptoms that my child is showing me who's afraid if the war is still going on. So she cries or he cries or they reach their hands up because they want to be held and I don't recognize the signals because I don't empathize. I'm not putting myself in that baby's shoes. From empathy, lack of empathy comes neglect. Now that child is being neglected And children who are neglected in that way, grow up to be less caring and kind and empathetic themselves. And now we have a cycle of not feeling the pain of others Mm -hmm. and now violence and hatred continue. And now you have intergenerational trauma and cycles of violence that continue. So it's cataclysmic Mm -hmm. because you're affecting both the caretakers and the children as they develop the nice piece that I like to put in people's head here to, to simplify the attachment pieces. Attachment is really like a, a game of tennis where the baby serves up the needs and the mother and father return the serve. Right. Mm. Now that doesn't mean that every need a child serves up is going to be met. When my, you know, three-year-old says, I want an iPhone. I'm like, sorry, you know, kid, (laughs) you're not getting that. And they got to deal with the consequences. But, When there's a synchrony of that game, just like in tennis, children develop a sense of safety and curiosity. Lovely studies going way back into the 60s, where you have a child who is strongly attached and a stranger comes in, a strongly attached child will begin to explore a little bit. An insecure child who is unsafe, where that serve and return is not meeting up, feels unsafe and is not going to go explore. So these exposures to war and conflict, which people now estimate maybe 1.5 billion kids are in conflict zones in the world at wide, are being affected cataclysmically because of the impact on mothers who then have an impact on child whose development now impacts their future behavior as adults.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Generations. Right. This, this is generations, and as you said, intergenerational trauma, which we yeah. see both in behavior, but also see in genetics passed Absolutely. down. Absolutely. So this is where, this is where we break things down to the different types. Uh, I mean, in the book, you talk about different the impacts of different types of abuse, like sexual abuse versus de- deprivation and neglect. Um, a very powerful piece on child soldiers, which, you know, those of us in, I, I would say, more normative clinical realms don't think of childhood soldiers. But as you make the connection, we do think of gangs. I mean, we, you know, we don't have childhood soldiers as a rule in our country. We have gangs, and there are um, very similar uh, aspects to those and, and implications. And there's these different types of interventions that raise from, that go from community culturally community-based interventions, all the way down to the individual interventions, such as, you know, uh, biofeedback, neurofeedback, different brain stimulation treatments, and all the way to the emerging t- um, psychedelic world for trauma. So let's, as as we move to the part of building resilience here, right, sure. like, and the hope, yeah. uh, because even in, in your stories of you know so the stories are some of them are just so heartbreaking especially for those of us who have that uh, empathy thing and visualization thing i mean there's some very difficult stories in there and those stories still have growth and hope through these different processes of yeah. thoughtful intervention right
1: yeah so I think, you know, it's interesting because I think, you know, when I was writing the book, um, (laughs) the, one of the earlier drafts, um, brought up this case of a young man I met living in Uganda. Um, and I had put that up front and my editor said, nah, (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that's going to be so relatable to, you know, some of the audience members, um, who definitely want to read your book. Um, and I get that. And I think, you know, and yet one of the things I'm trying to do in the book, which I think is really important here, is there's some wonderful books on how to think about trauma. trauma. Um, you know, Bessel van der Kolk's mm-hmm. book, Bruce mm-hmm. Perry and Oprah Winfrey's book are all wonderful. Um, to me, they um, are very Western focused. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I don't mean that necessarily as a, as a criticism, I'm just saying that's what they are. And they're also focused mostly on adults who may or may not have had uh, childhood experiences that were traumatic. What I wanted to do in the book is put a lens that was much more global. Because to me, the issue is a global issue. And the reason why that's important is because what counts, let's say, as physical abuse in our country is not necessarily physical abuse in another country, right? So physical punishment, something that in some schools, including the United States, where corporal punishment is alive and well in some states, um, is also sort of part and parcel of schools in other countries, Um, In some places that's been rejected and it's now no longer possible. But But what counts as physical abuse is going to be different by different cultures. What counts as neglect is going to be different in different cultures. So I wanted to put a lens on that because when we start thinking about interventions, I want to be thinking about interventions that in some cases may be very, very Western focused and in other cases may be very, very well global. So when we get to thinking about, for example, child soldiers, one of the kind of interventions that has become so important to think about is in some ways welcoming these kids back to their villages Mm -hmm. and having both the child, now sometimes adult uh, or young adult, and the community recognize they were victims in many cases, Mm -hmm. or maybe in all cases, Mm -hmm. and that it's not in some ways their fault that they became killers, which they were, um, in some cases, as I point out in the book, children who turned to becoming ch- children, it was their best option to stay alive.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Again, they're a victim because it's the only choice they may have had. And so villages allowing those children back into the fold. Some cases where there are no relatives left me because of conflict, um, has been incredibly rejuvenating for recovery for those kids and enabled that recovery. Mm -hmm. In many of the schools, so I do work in Kenya, a a country that has a very large uh, number of orphans. There are approximately three million orphans in Kenya, 54 million of Sub-Saharan Africa, where these children um, are maybe on the streets, some of them are in orphanages or they're often called child children's homes. An important tell there is that a lot of the really elegant scientific work on the role of deprivation comes from the work out of Romania, whereas a result of work by people like Charles Nelson and Charles Zena, Nathan Fox, uh, elegant, elegant developmental scientists, they showed that. Those kinds of deprivation coming out of Romania and Eastern Europe left these absolutely devastating traces on these children if they remain in that environment through their early teen years. As a result of that work, orphanages closed because they realized the impact of those kinds of environments. The reason I bring that up is because there's been other work coming out of Duke in other low to middle income countries like Kenya, Tanzania, Cambodia, and so forth, where they've shown that in these orphanages, children seem to be more successful. And part of the tell there, and I've certainly experienced this with the work that we're doing in Kenya, is that there seems to be an important difference between the orphanages that were in Eastern Europe and the ones that seem to be in some of these countries. And that is in countries like Kenya and Tanzania, the staff that are in the orphanages stay. They're reliable, consistent mm. caretakers. Mm-hmm. Whereas I know for my youngest daughter, the orphanage, she, it was a constant you know, assembly line of different people. So there's no attachment, there's no predictability. That's important in terms of an intervention. It's not that you have to have necessarily a parent to develop into a healthy individual, but you better have consistent, reliable caretakers. Mm -hmm. So that's really important at the intervention level. And it's a story that to me ramifies through all the schools that I work with in the United States where there are children with trauma is that staff know that if they stay and are consistent and are there for the kids, kids can grow. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so important that departments of education support well these staff (laughs) where the job is very, very difficult
0: Mm -hmm.
1: because that reliability is going to allow for growth.
0: And just to bring in the comment that you made in the book about COVID and how we saw the importance of schools for many of our vulnerable kids, the vulnerable minds, and how reports of child abuse went down during COVID, which was not a good thing because it was still happening. And many would argue at an increased rate because of all the stresses. And these kids didn't have eyes on them. They didn't have the caring adults in their life that they could count on every day, let alone in many cases get meals. And so the culture and community and schools are, I think, often you know, the work that you and many of your colleagues are doing are so critical. And yet in so much of the medical and psychological field, everyone's thinking about, okay, we just have to get them some therapy and we need to get them some medicine. And while those may be helpful, they may be uh, necessary, but not sufficient. If we do not have the environment for healing.
1: That's exactly right. And I think, you know, the COVID experiment, right. The natural experiment of COVID, a global one, um, we are now seeing in schools um, basically socially immature kids who had approximately, many of them, two years of being socially deprived. And what many have recognized in the sciences is that those teen years are a critical sort of sensitive period of development for social experiences. It's like the early periods for language. If you live in a world from birth until the age of four and there's very little language exposure, you are gonna probably experience delays in language acquisition. The same is true for the social skills. And the children who my daughter was a freshman in college and she came home and I can tell you FaceTime didn't solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And so she was socially deprived and, you know, we're, we think we're pretty good parents <laughs> um, and we try to be fun and we have a great relationship, but we didn't do it for her. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important to recognize these windows of experiences that when they don't happen or they happen in a minimalist way. You see deficits, and we are going to be picking up this deficit for a long time because these kids have really suffered from that exposure to COVID, which closed the experience that they need. It's like they need food; they need the social experiences.
0: Mm-hmm. So, as we wind down here, we could go. I, we could keep going. I've got. I've got so much more to ask. <laughs> um, Say a little bit about the emerging work and success of neurofeedback, you know, if you could and touch on some of the brain – I know it's a lot, but just a little – just to give everyone a little bite and the the brain-stimulating technologies – um, also the, um, emerging field of psychedelics, which is both exciting and we have to proceed with caution. And then finally, even a, this quick touch on medicine, because you mentioned propanol as a beta blocker, which is very different than the typical SSRIs that are often given with l- limited at times success. Yeah. All right. Good. That's a lot there. That's a big question yeah. for the summary here.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, so, you know, you, you've hit upon, you know, it's a chapter called neuroengineering and, and the idea is. I wanted to open the reader's eyes um, to, in some cases, emerging and controversial um, technologies that go beyond therapy, um, which has nothing negative at all to say about therapy, which in fact, as I'm sure you're aware, and some readers may be, uh, listeners may be aware as well, um, the psychedelic revolution is one that is not just like, go on a wild trip but it's therapy-assisted psychedelics. And that's critical, absolutely critical. Mm -hmm. So we'll come back to that. Um, Part of what I was trying to do in the book is talk about techniques where there has been a history for some of, in some ways, treatment resistance to therapy and medication of ways in which we can go basically beyond and make some progress. Some of these technologies have only been used on adults. And I want to, really important to bracket that. Mm -hmm. We haven't yet gotten to the point where at least some of these technologies have been even tried on on kids, Um, but they're promising. One of the ones that I'm particularly um, excited about, because I think it's been developing very, very methodically over time, is a technique called transcranial magnetic stimulation. This is basically a magnet that's applied to. The skull. Um, I've done it to myself. We've got a couple papers published on that with students of mine where we've looked at areas that can be effectively turned off, or in some cases, activated more. And what I find particularly interesting about this is I'll just mention one study um, where people who have had visually traumatic experiences. So these are cases like seeing someone die in a car accident or be exposed to rape, things where there's a very strong visual component of it. You know I'm just distinguishing that between from that and let's say um, neglect, where there's not necessarily that visual imagery right. So part of the reason why those are often such difficult experiences is because those memories keep coming back and they haunt the individual. A veteran of war can't get those thoughts, out of his or her head, right? They're just there all the time. The sounds and the imagery is just part of their daily life, which is why for many dissociating from the pain is such a common response, okay? So in the case of this transcranial magnetic stimulation or TMS, you go to an area of the visual cortex, the back of your head, okay? Where the visual areas are, And where we know there's an area that's very powerful for visual imagery. And you have the person bring back that visual imagery of the traumatic experience. And while that's happening, you're basically deactivating the visual area of the brain. Here's what you find. They don't lose the memory that they experienced that. They just lose the visual imagery that's associated with it. Hmm. Now that to me is absolutely remarkable. Yeah. Because the worry with lizing are we are we like screwing around people's memories? Well, we are in some ways, but what we're doing is we're tamping down the visual imagery. So they go, "Yep, I was in the war. It wasn't good, but I, I I'm not seeing the explosions or the dead bodies anymore."
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: it's tamping that imagery down which provides a way for healing that is really, really important. Mm -hmm. Similarly, where the psychedelic revolution to me is so extraordinary scientifically, because the evidence is so beautiful, and it's still early days,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: but very close now to maybe getting FDA approval is that it's therapy assisted and it's a therapy assisted part, which is really important to keep in mind. One example with PTSD sufferers who have been treatment resistant for an average of let's say 10 to 12 years, where medication has not worked, therapy has not worked, combination of medication and therapy has not worked. You put people on a course of MDMA or ecstasy with therapy over approximately eight weeks or so. And what you find is 67% lose the ptsd diagnosis
0: which is astonishing i mean which is
1: totally astonishing Mm -hmm. i mean that's like physics i mean like if you got a a physics result not like you know a psychological result Um, and then psilocybin for major depression again similar kinds of results in the case of depression again sort of linking up with the idea for the tms is that we know that in major depression There's an area of the brain called the default network, which is really kind of the autobiographical me, me area, right? And in depression, my mom suffered from major depression. Um, Part of it is they just can't get out of their own thought. Uh I I, I feel so bad all the time. You know, that was my mom, right? Why should I feel so bad? My life is good. I feel so bad. Psilocybin, the psychedelic, ultimately quiets that area down so that the other areas of the brain become more available to therapy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's the beauty of this, is that we're understanding more and more of the mechanism. The mechanism is what allows that targeted therapy to work.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So this, to me, is incredibly exciting because to think about people who have been treatment-resistant for that long. right? And, of course, the hope is with a much younger brain that's more plastic – maybe that potential is even greater. But of course, there are risks there. And that's what we have to be careful of.
0: Yes. And and what keeps going through my head as you are speaking about all of these amazing results is the tamping down, the uh, turning down the volume, the softening. These are all words that I've used over the years when talking to clients about um, medication trials, right? Mm -hmm. And so in our world, and of course, this is a whole nother conversation in our world of uh, psychotropics and insurance driven um, treatments, no one's having a problem with tamping down these things for the help of the client or patient through Mm -hmm. our prescribed medications. And what you're talking about are these other different interventions which have the same, and we, could prob- we will be arguing, a higher efficacy for um, recovery versus just uh, masking, I think is what we're going to find over time.
1: That, that's right. And I think there's, a, there's an important parallel here with, you know, I'm sure some of your listeners are aware of is, you know, with th- these, some of these medications, we, we don't, these psychedelics, we don't know the long term consequences Mm -hmm. like you know it's like ozempic right i mean right maybe maybe this is the weight-saving drug of the of the you know the decade the century whatever um but we don't really know any of the long-term consequences and and you know uh ozempic is a life sentence um and some of these psychedelics maybe as well who knows right um so we have to be very cautious here but i'm cautiously optimistic mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. um and in part i think because the scientists who have been involved in this work um have been incredibly careful to do what i think of as a kind of the best kind of science mm-hmm. um very carefully done uh very careful control and in some ways cautious with their interpretations as well
0: mm-hmm. and again the what we haven't talked about is the evolutionary biologist part of your life that you very much bring into all this with all of the animal studies and uh, I went to a university that was well known for the comparative um, psychology department and at the time having to, had to take those classes within my program you know understanding the importance of those studies and of course the Harlow studies and 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 the, the big famous ones what you really bring to, to the to the fore is, the critical importance of bridging what we know in science from all of our relative species to humans because it's so powerful in helping, treating, and understanding our evolution and our behavior.
1: It, it It absolutely is. And I think you know, we've been able to make great progress. I mean, you know, one of the studies in the book is studies where they gave you know, uh, rats MDMA. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So, and And you know, the the short version of it is that it opened up a critical period for sociality. Well, that's that's revolutionary. I mean, that is an extraordinary finding. And so I think the animal studies for a, a while, are going to be a great step up for us to understand the details of the mechanism so that we can think about their relationship between other animals and ourselves as animals in terms of what can be done.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, last question statement before the parent footprint moment question. Leave us with a message of the hope.
1: I think the message of hope is that we have an extraordinary opportunity Um, to help children build resilience and recovery. And I think it's those two R's together that I think is the hopeful piece. We need to be building resilience in anticipation of future adversity Mm -hmm. while taking advantage of all the developments that have happened in medicine, in neuroscience, in education, in nursing, in social work to really help these kids who have experienced such trauma recover from them, and regain the joy of childhood. Mm
0: -hmm. Resilience as equal, if not more important than any subject that they are being taught in school. I think so. (laughs) Okay, Dr. Mark, parent footprint moment question. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents. And that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your children, and/or those you love.
1: I mean, there's so many. <laughs> <laughs> I think of you know. I, I, I keep thinking about all this work coming out these days on you know we have multiple selves, right? Mm-hmm. And we often don't even know which ones they are. I I think I'll I'll flag it to my two daughters, and in part because they were such different experiences as a parent. I think with both of them, because of their own differences as individuals and their own experiences, I really learned the joy of teaching. I really realized with both of them how much I enjoyed being an educator, that that was a gift I had. And it didn't matter who the audience was (laughs) Mm -hmm. that I enjoyed as much, you know, teaching a little toddler about hiding things (laughs) and playing with things as I enjoy talking with someone like you about science. Mm. And so I think having children was really formative for me about the teaching piece and how important in some ways empathy and perspective taking is because you can't teach if you can't put yourself in someone else's shoes Mm.
0: i've always been inspired by educators uh scholars researchers who can take the complex and put it into real life in a way that makes a difference and you are clearly one of those special individuals
1: thank you very much i appreciate that comment
0: (laughs) Tell everyone where they can get your emerging work. Your emerging wonderful book. I want to repeat for everyone: "Vulnerable Minds: The Harm of Trauma and the Hope of Resilience," as well as um, your program and all the work you are doing globally.
1: Yeah. So um, my author website's probably the best place. It's um, Mark D- Mark with the C, uh, French background. Uh, <laughs> Mark with the C D. Hauser, H-A-U-S-E-R.com. And that has, you know, my previous books and of course, Vulnerable Minds as well. It also has links to um, some of my papers um, for those who are interested in some of the scientific uh, work. Um, And it also has links to some of the um, work I do on Risk Eraser. Um, So Risk Eraser really is, it's, it's, again, it's, so it's, you know, risk-eraser.com. Um, and that's an organization that, um, is really focused on vulnerable children, uh, including children with trauma and children with, uh, disabilities. Um, and we work, um, largely in schools, um, nationally and, uh, internationally, uh, much of the work that we're focusing on now, um, is focused on the country of Kenya, um, working in children's homes or orphanages, um, as well as helping to develop, um, actually university uh, programs to train generations of mental health workers. Um, because the, the crisis of mental health is so big, Mm -hmm. um, you know, a country like Kenya, um, has, you know, a couple of child psychiatrists and millions of kids who need the help. Mm-hmm. And so we need to be able to train people to handle mm-hmm. the load. Um, right. As many people in our own country experienced during COVID college counselors and high school counselors were absolutely overwhelmed.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so even mm-hmm. in our own country, a wealthy developed country, we don't have the tools to really yeah. help the need.
0: The the millions of uh, orphans that you referenced earlier it, it's it's mine but like you a can, uh, mine cannot even wrap I, I cannot wrap myself around 54 million children yeah. right it just in this it just in this place
1: <laughs> that's own. right
0: yes so that's this work right. is so critical so important everyone get this book tell everyone give this show to everyone you know, if you want to get involved, check out Dr. Mark's website. There are lots of opportunities to help people in our country and around the world. There is not enough of us. I mean, there, there is more work. It'd be great to work ourselves out of a job, but I do not think that's going to happen. We just have to take one life at a time, make a difference for one life at a time, which as we talked about, will have ripple effects for generations. That's right. Dr. Mark, thank you for sharing your wisdom and experience with us and uh, for making such a big difference.
1: Dr. Dan, thank you. I really appreciate the time.
0: All right, everyone, you know what to do. As I said, please spread the word, share the show. Thank you for being part of our community, a part of our caring community who is wanting to make a difference in your own lives, the life of your kids, the life of your future, perhaps grandchildren and beyond. Thank you for your five-star reviews. And of course, the final two things I will leave you with, do your best to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself that guiding question, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummer Man, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com.